Hi there, Dane here, Chief Medical Advisor at Active IQ. So welcome to this Active IQ podcast. So today we're going to be talking about chronic disease, exercise and physical activity in general, but also the NHS landscape and key public health messages. So to do this, I'm joined by Dr. Justin Varney. So Dr. Justin Varney is currently the Director of Public Health for Birmingham City Council. Justin was also the national lead for adult health and wellbeing in the past. So firstly, Justin, thanks for joining us. Hi, Dane. So before we get started, um, I know you've had an interesting public health career to date, so it'd be really interesting to hear a little bit about your journey to date and what you currently do. Sure. So I, I started training as a doctor. So originally, uh, I think back in medical school, my plan was to do uh, paediatric palliative care and, and be a kind of uh, martyr uh, supporting children dying. Uh, I changed and, and moved into general practice. So I, I started my training as a GP. Uh, and then through that, uh, I discovered public health and, and discovered that my real heart lay in, in trying to change the system uh, and uh, help to improve and protect the lives of people at population level. Um, and I started my public health career in East London, in Barking and Dagenham, uh, then did a stint uh, at Public Health England, uh, doing a range of, of national roles. Uh, and then uh, relatively recently, a couple of months ago, I moved to join Birmingham City Council to uh, take on a role protecting and improving the health of the people of Birmingham, which is the, the largest council in Europe, one of the youngest populations, one of the most diverse, and also one with some really significant health challenges. So I've, I've moved into... Uh, moved through a series of different paces in my career, um, local, national, uh, London, regional. Uh, and uh, it's been a lot of fun so far, a lot of hard work, but it's a great place to be. Perfect. So I guess that's quite good for us because obviously you've got this range of experience from not only doing general practice as well as so seeing kind of clinical patients, but now having this national role, but also now on a more regional level as well. Um, so hopefully we can pick your brains as we talk through some of these questions. Sure. So, first of all, to get started, I guess inactivity obviously is a, is a big problem uh, and one that the fitness industry and obviously public health know a lot about. But why is inactivity and poor lifestyle such a major issue? And I guess, um, what do you think could be done about it? And particularly, I guess, what can the health and fitness industry or personal trainers do about it? So, I think it's important to start off by saying um, when we talk about inactivity in the UK and particularly in England context, we're talking about people that do less than 30 minutes of physical activity every week. Um, and at an international level, when we talk about inactivity, we're talking about people that are not achieving the recommended 150 minutes of moderate physical activity a week. So this, it's really just important to say at the beginning, you know, when I say inactivity, I mean people are not even doing 30 minutes of moderate physical activity a week. Um, and the reason it's important is we know that um, inactivity is associated with an increased risk of many, many different conditions. Um, and I think we've seen a real shift over the last five to ten years of talking about activity and inactivity uh, solely in the context of obesity, where we know that reality is that the most important thing people can do um, to achieve a healthy way to maintain it is modify their diet. And activity plays a role in supporting that, but it's not the most important thing you can do. To now talking about the role that activity plays in reducing the risk of 
uh, dementia, of improving musculoskeletal health, of being used in the treatment and management of uh, conditions, and um, being more effective or as effective in a range of conditions um, as drugs. So a um, good example of this is depression, where we know that um, regular physical activity is as effective as first-line antidepressants. Um, and yet we've still got quite a long way to go in terms of getting people, uh, particularly clinicians, to think about physical activity first, pills and potions second. Um, so I think we're in a really exciting space at the moment about that shift. And I think the opportunity for the fitness industry is to engage in that conversation and use it as a way of, of bringing more people through the door or into contact. Um, there is, however, some real challenges for the industry, and I'm sure we'll talk about those as we go on around. You, if you really focus on the people that are doing less than 30 minutes, um, and we start talking to them uh, about a gym or a run, sometimes that you might as well just be saying, go climb Everest. Um, but it is, I think we are in a unique space in time now where people are really starting to understand that everybody getting active every day, no matter what your ability, will have a positive impact on your life and it will do it in so many different ways that it's really important. Sounds good. Um, I guess there, so. There's lots of opportunities for us, and hopefully, um, as you say, you know, loads of good evidence for why this is effective. Um, and as we talk through, hopefully, we'll talk about some of those opportunities further. Um, and I guess starting on that point, I know you're a big fan of personal training, and you've had a number of personal trainers over the years. Um, I guess from your kind of unique viewpoint, I guess what are the strengths of uh, our workforce, um, and what do we need to push more and shout more about? Sure, yeah, so I've, I've had a few personal trainers. Um, one of the reasons I, I choose to use a personal trainer is it protects in my day uh, real me time. So um, I can't do anything else, can't do my emails um, or read something while I'm doing a personal training session. So it, for me, it's been a really important way of uh, maintaining my work-life balance. And at the moment, I train twice a week uh, with a personal trainer early in the morning. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting is that personal trainers vary hugely. Uh, I'm a strong advocate in uh, do a bit of shopping around for your personal trainers um, and, uh, you know, try before you buy, in essence. Um, mm. it, it is a very personal connection and that's a huge asset. And, and I think we underestimate uh, the one-to-one nature of a personal training relationship and how that can really be beneficial. Um, the, the thing I think for me around personal trainers is that thinking through that relationship is more than a technical instruction on exercise. Um, and it's absolutely about motivation. It's about supporting individuals. It's a, really, there's a strong component about helping people feel comfortable with the bodies that they have mm-hmm. and working with them to achieve their potential with their body, with their ability and, and who they are and where they are. Um, and good personal trainers uh, are, help people move through that journey and they build your self-esteem as well as building your flexibility, uh, your strength and your capacity for, for aerobic exercise. Um, I think most of society doesn't really understand that, doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. 
um, um, and still perceives personal trainers as uh, a kind of luxury thing that you do um, that really is reserved for the people who are already quite fit um, uh, and already actively, you know, strapping on the lycra or jumping on a bike type thing. Um, so I think the industry's got a bit of an image challenge. Um, and I do think one of the, the real weaknesses of the industry, which unfortunately I think is tied to the way that personal trainers get paid, yeah. um, is that the, the kind of way some trainers align themselves with products that have got no evidence mm-hmm. um, and actually could potentially be harmful. So some of the, the ways that protein powders are, are being promoted, you know, most people... Um, who are not doing competitive sports will have very, very little benefit and, in fact, could face harm from using some of the supplements, nutritional supplements. Um, and, yeah, I do see a lot of trainers promoting stuff like that, and, and it's that kind of selling of snake oil, which I think does the industry damage, um, which is a pity because I, I think, um, you know, I, I think personal training can be an amazing benefit Um for anyone at any ability um and the industry could do a lot more to help people really understand that yeah i think they're they're all very valid points aren't they and i think like you said some of the challenges really around you know many of the pts out there are self-employed so it's definitely a pressure to make income while doing what they enjoy which usually ends up including a range of supplements potentially without the evidence base for it um but i guess that also leads on to Probably the next question, really, which is really around, I guess, training providers are out there delivering these qualifications. Um, so at Active IQ, we've got a, a number of training providers delivering our qualifications. And I guess it's about them delivering good evidence-based um, um, education. Um, but I guess kind of considering what training providers should be doing, you know, um, if you could help influence kind of what training providers could teach their fitness professionals around exercise medicine or the physical activity space, uh, what would you encourage them to teach their students and, and kind of any advice on how you might look at delivering it? Yeah, so I definitely think providers should do a bit more around the motivational interviewing side of, of training um, and understanding the kind of psychology of behaviour change. I mean, we, we've moved in the evidence base um, a lot further forward. Um, you know, many of the behaviour change models we've relied on uh, from a health perspective have been nested in our experience of smoking cessation. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's quite a big difference because if we're trying to encourage someone to be physically active, um, especially if we're doing it in a, in a good way, we're encouraging them to get out of their house, engage with people, have fun, uh, do something which is fun and should be enjoyable. And it can be social and can be connecting and it can be all sorts of really positive things. Um, we're not asking them to stop something that they currently enjoy. Uh, and that's one of the real tension points, I think, in the training is that we have we have very limited really understanding of um, the difference between behaviour change when we're trying to get people to stop things versus how we try to get people to start things. Um, And the reality is that most of us are physically active every day unconsciously. It's part of how we get to the shops or get to school or go to work. Mm -hmm. Um, That's where we get the bulk of our physical activity. Um, 
And what sessions and opportunities for personal trainers is much more about is, is about that personal experience of your body and your self-esteem and developing the skills and the aptitude for physical activity, the flexibility, the resilience as you age, those kind of things. Um, and I'm not sure the training really at the moment pulls that out enough for people. Um, I think there are also things where I think um, trainers could, um, training organisations could be cleverer around the the kind of side benefits of that one-to-one relationship. You know, I would really like to see every PT training course include a section on uh, mental health and mental health awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and a very explicit section on domestic violence awareness. Um, these are both issues in which it is undoubtedly that amongst your client base, at some point in your career, you will come into contact with someone who is experiencing mental health issues or has experienced or is experiencing uh, violence and abuse. And actually, you have a unique space because you generally personal training is one-to-one and even if it's in a gym setting you know you're not being watched or overheard it's a it's a safish space mm. um and i think we i think providers should do a bit more in that in that kind of opportunity um because ultimately you know, the, the profession has got a bit of an image problem um and particularly as the population ages and more of us are going to live longer um it's important that PTs appeal to um, 60-year-olds as much as they appeal to 20-year-olds. And the fitness industry in its, in its totality um, is quite youth-obsessed. Um, and unfortunately, I think that plays out in the way training providers behave as well. So I'd, I'd love to see much more around diversity and inclusion. Uh, I'd love to see a much more diverse and inclusive uh, workforce in the PT industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would really love to see a, a strong emphasis on the the kind of psychosocial, psychological aspects of of what the offer is, uh, as well as the mechanics of the exercise. That's that's good to hear. I guess um, there's lots of things that are currently changing in the qualification sector. So um, just to give you some examples. That I think um, picking on some of the things you said. Uh, Active IQ have just changed their diploma in personal training to now include um, some mental health conditions. Um, so all their PTs get it as standard. Um, and they've just brought out um, the mental health awareness qualification to try and upskill um, kind of health and fitness industry sectors, not just PTs, but a range of other professionals working there to try and be more aware. Um, so I think things are starting to change, but I think you're right there. There's definitely quite a lot more to be done to try and change uh, some of the image that goes with it too. Um, and again, also trying to push that across to the providers who are actually delivering the qualification to make sure that it's it's included and, and delivered the way we want it to be delivered. In terms of uh, moving forward, um, I guess with, with some of the image stuff that you talked about and the kind of, you know, this obsession more towards uh, youth, um, I guess if you look at personal trainers in general, it's generally been argued that there's more of a focus on performance or aesthetics uh, than on clients that might have more health-related uh, goals or needs. Um, obviously, this landscape's changing, and, and people like Simsper are releasing new standards, um, pushing the kind of exercise and long-term conditions. But I guess what are the opportunities for the health and fitness industry kind of in this health space 
versus this kind of more aesthetics performance space that I think we spend most of our time in? So I think it's an interesting question. Um, I think the, um, I mean, actually some of the research that UK Active did with the membership uh, data showed that if you can engage a client um, who is more mature, older, they're much more loyal mm-hmm. um, than younger clients. So younger clients um, kind of uh, stick around for a year, possibly two at max, when they're signing up for, for a leisure membership, for example, whereas a client who's over 50, um, providing they're having a good experience, will be a client for 10 years um, plus. So, and I think the same is true for PTs. And I think it's an interesting space around... Um, how uh, trainers modify the offer. And I think much of the offer at the moment is focused on uh, performance enhancement in a time-limited way. And, and there's been a real growth in the industry in the last two to three years of the kind of 12-week transformation-type packages mm. um, and the kind of CrossFit genre, this, this idea of you know, high-intensity, short-period, fixed-time frame. Um, what's interesting is I think the client base is starting to go, that's great, but we want an ongoing relationship. Um, and I think very few uh, PTs at the moment have really thought through what a maintenance model looks like um, versus a, an accelerated performance model. Um, I think the reality of the where we are in, in the kind of public sector purse, et cetera, is, you know, health is not the cash cow it was 10 years ago. Um, exercise on referral programs have gradually shrunk and shrunk um, just because the money isn't there in the same way. Um, and But I think PTs shouldn't forget that there's a lot of people for the, who, if they understood and saw the potential would happily spend the money on a PT rather than the money going out for takeaway or getting a takeaway or going out for dinner once a mm. week uh, type thing. Um, but I do think the industry's still got to do quite a lot to help people understand that potential. And um, and PTs themselves need to be a bit more explicit about their, their desire to and their qualification understanding of working with different conditions and you know and sorry to go on about you know i i had spinal surgery uh five six years ago so it's been really interesting for me to my first question to any prospective pt i'm going to work with is tell me about how you work with people who've got impairments and disabilities uh and although i have a very small functional impairment um it's really interesting how few of the PTs that I've talked to are uh, can actually articulate that back. Um, and, you know, if I was a little bit less forward and I was just looking at people's websites and their profiles, very, very few talk about um, a more diverse body image, a more diverse set of uh, people with impairments they've worked with. Um, and yet you're trained to do it. So, hey, um, yeah. So I think there's a bit about selling that a bit more and engaging people. Yeah, no, I think that I think they're fair points. I think some of, if you look at most industry qualifications historically, it's always been the main bulk of the qualifications been around treating or working with that very fit and well person with almost no disease, no issues, no impairments. 
Um, and actually, particularly if you look at other countries, uh, the average PT comes almost with their personal training qualification and something similar to exercise referral where they understand the principles of rehab, uh, adaptation, maybe slightly more. Um, I think that's changing, particularly in London. I think there's probably more exercise referral with PTs and they probably are um, definitely where we are uh, in York at the moment. Um, but again, I think it's it's trying to get across to PTs that the health side matters. And, and like you said, that UK statistic around older people probably more likely to hold on to it uh, and stay with their PT. And actually, as we both know, you know, the older you are, the more likely you are to have at least one long term condition anyway. Um, so, yeah, no really relevant points. Um, and I think going I, on from I, that and the NHS space um, it is quite complicated, isn't it? Uh, and I think you're the best person to kind of talk through this, given the many hats that you've worn over the years. Um, so one of the things fitness professionals need to know about is um, how money flows in, in a healthcare system. Um, and I was hoping you might be able to briefly explain kind of the crux of how does money flow in a healthcare system, how decisions are generally made, and kind of what are the key organisations that I guess fitness professionals need to be aware of and try and engage with. So, as you say, it's not a straightforward uh, picture. And so this is my kind of very simplistic way of describing it. But if you do want to find out a bit more detail, I really commend the uh, the King's Fund. have got a great graphic on their website about how money flows. Um, but fundamentally, um, at national government level, um, the Department of Health gives money to NHS England uh, and uh, to Public Health England, are the two kind of main funding streams. Um, and uh, the money that flows through, uh, through, kind of through Public Health England to local councils is the Public Health Grant, mm-hmm. and that's a ring-fence pot of money focused on improving and protecting the health of people at population level. Um, and that funds things like the NHS Health Checks Programme, making cessation, drug and alcohol services. Um, and often that's been the pot of money that has also funded things like exercise on prescription or exercise on referral. Mm-hmm. The much larger volume of money goes through NHS England, and that's the money that pays for hospitals, for GPs, uh, for pharmacists, for, and for, for uh, prescription medication. Um, and that flows through NHS England down to clinical commissioning groups, which are um, population-based, and they're not they're not all uh, matching onto local government boundaries, but there's a move to kind of shift in that direction. Um, and um, NHS England commissions some services directly, so uh, what's called specialist commissioning, so the kind of super specialist services like uh, children's heart surgery is commissioned directly by NHS England. But most things, uh, and and some things like prison health, for example, is commissioned uh, by NHS England. Um, However, most things are commissioned by the clinical commissioning groups, and they are responsible for commissioning local hospitals and also for commissioning general practice uh, Mm -hmm. and specific general practice services. Um, The NHS, uh, England published uh, the 10-year forward plan uh, a couple of months ago now, which set out its kind of longer-term strategy. So a couple of years ago, it published the five-year forward view, which is kind of here's the vision of where we want to go. The 10-year plan is much more on how we're going to get there and some very concrete 
things. Uh, so, for example, most of the stuff around prevention is, is in the second chapter, chapter two of the document, and it talks about uh, things like providing NHS-funded smoking cessation in maternity services and providing more physical health support for people with severe and enduring mental health conditions in contact with mental health services. Um, and they're just two of the, the kind of things that were scattered through chapter two. Um, so it is relatively complicated in a sense, but I mean, my kind of simplistic flow is uh, money goes from Treasury to the Department of Health. Department of Health gives the bulk of the money to NHS England, and that flows through to clinical commissioning groups who then buy uh, local health services from a range of different providers. Does that kind of make sense, Dane, in terms of trying to simplify it? Yeah, I think it does. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I guess I, I guess with all these things, it's about application and context, isn't it? So while that's the case, is there anything particular that you see PTs needing to engage with, or not just PTs, but maybe the health and fitness industry as a whole? Who should they be talking to try and work with them to maybe reduce uh, cost or provide extra value? Um, where are the relationships that should be formed? So I think that the it's really important to kind of uh, I think think through why you want to have a conversation. Mm. Um, and certainly my experience as, as director of public health is lots and lots of people want to talk to me. Um, and um, one of the things I, I try to be really clear about is you know that there is no new money. Um, there isn't a great big sack of cash sat in the corner that's not being spent uh, or not being committed. Um, so I think we've got to be really honest about where the public purse is at the moment mm. um, and, and talk about that honestly. Um, I think the second thing to really keep in mind is that although there's good evidence that physical activity um, improves and reduces the risk of conditions like cancer, the time frame for that is years, not months. There are some areas like, for example, blood pressure uh, and some evidence around and, and mental health, actually depression is another good one, where the, the impact is within weeks. So it's in real time um, and it, within a financial cycle. Um, but the reality is for many of the impacts, like things like dementia, the impact is there, but it doesn't show in terms of the NHS balance sheet uh, within a financial cycle, within even two or three. So it's hard to make an investor-save argument in that sense. Um, so I think with that kind of context, it then goes, well, what do you want to have a conversation about? Um, and increasingly, I think there is a shift that the leisure industry have understood this, so that um, this isn't a conversation about trying to get money from health into leisure. It's much more a conversation about, we already have a service, that may or may not be funded either directly from, from citizens or um, through council money for leisure, different funding sources. Um, what we want to do is get your punters through the door uh, and how can we work together like that? And, and that yeah. for me is a much more positive conversation. Um, what I would say about personal trainers in terms of this, because I think they are slightly different position from um, from leisure providers, mm -hmm. um, partially because of their freelance status, um, is in local areas, if you want to kind of have that conversation, form a kind of local federation, find a way of coming together so that you're not talking as an individual, you're talking as a group of local 
personal trainers who really want to make a difference locally. Um, because if you're someone like me, I mean, you know, Birmingham has 1.2 million people. We have 69 wards and 101 elected members. Um, it's a really big place. If every PT in the city wanted to talk to me, I just couldn't do it. Um, so I, I think there's some real opportunities to think about a bit of self-organising between PTs and think about how you guys can work together um, to have a, a different conversation uh, and come to the table. Um, and that can be a conversation at city level, it could be at ward level. Um, things like ward forums, these are in, in every area across the country, there'll be some form of community meeting in which uh, local councillors come together with local residents and talk about the challenges. And increasingly they're talking about health and getting involved in that kind of volunteering space is a great way not just to help influence but also to be seen. There are lots of different ways of influencing, but I, I think we do need to be brutally honest about um, there isn't a pot of cash at the end of it. Um, so this is more about raising the awareness of the service that can be offered <clears throat> rather than necessarily thinking that you're going to get commissioned um, because I, I don't think that's real anymore. No, that's really useful. Um, I think sometimes it's nice to know that so that, because I, I think there's a lot of personal trainers that constantly ask, you know, who do I need to talk to at the CCG? How do I, how do I access, you know, financial um, help to, to help me with my service? So I think it's useful to, to have that honest conversation um and i think the key point you make there as well which maybe we don't do so well in, in the pt spaces is people coming together to form larger kind of you know federations that could then go and discuss on behalf rather than it being every man for himself um so i think yeah definitely something for for the guys who are listening to have a think about okay um I, we've talked about ccgs we've talked about how money flows um Obviously, there is now these new PCNs being formed. So I was hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about what PCNs are and what's different about them, um, just so we've got that kind of broader picture. So uh, primary care networks, PCNs, are, are part of the, the uh, kind of evolution of the NHS, uh, particularly the primary care bit of the NHS, to try and get much better at being local and much better at being place-based. So... One of the big challenges we've had over the years is that um, the NHS kind of does what it wants in its own little world and local government, the police, the fire service all work <clears throat> in, a, in a much more place-based uh, way. And, and the two haven't, haven't had the same geography, haven't had the same uh, population they talk about. And that causes problems and it causes tensions in spaces like social care. Um, so primary care networks are about bringing together groups of GP practices, uh, pharmacists. Um, I think eventually it will involve uh, dentists, optometrists. It's really about the primary care professionals in a patch uh, working together on a population basis of between 30 and 50,000. Mm -hmm. uh, and that patch is geographically defined. Um, and it's about across that patch flexing the assets that, that we've got so that we don't have to have everything everywhere, mm -hmm. but we also develop a bit more of kind of centers of excellence. And uh, alongside the PCNs, um, there have been certain requirements for additional staff. So there's money coming down through government to them, um, which will enable them to have uh, physiotherapists, clinical pharmacists, 
Uh, and this new role called a social prescriber as well, which I, I think probably the most exciting space um, for for the fitness and leisure industry to engage with is, is this new opportunity about social prescription. So, and let's talk a bit more about social prescribing. So obviously, as you say, it's kind of taken off. Um, it's gaining a lot of traction. Um, and I, I see a lot of opportunities for us here, all the skills of people in the fitness industry um, here. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what exactly social prescribing is, kind of how it works and potentially the role we might have to play here? So social prescribing, in, in essence, is, is you go and see your doctor mm-hmm. uh, and say you go and you say, uh, you know, you're experiencing uh, mild moderate depression or anxiety. And uh, rather than prescribe you a pill, uh, your GP says, actually, come have a conversation with our social prescriber. And, and the social prescriber is sometimes called a link worker, community navigator. They're an individual who's had some training around motivational interviewing, um, but also to explore your kind of interests, your area. Uh, and they've got a kind of catalogue of everything that's going on in the local community. And they may say, okay, um, you've got uh, you've got mild to moderate depression, um, and when I talk to you, um, I understand you're also socially isolated and a bit lonely. And uh, what thinking around what's in the community, what might be good for you? And they might say, "Oh, actually, there's this gardening uh, club at the allotment that might be really up your street because you've got an interest in gardening, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a good way to be getting a bit more active, but also it'll, it'll help with your social isolation." Or they might say, "Actually, there's a, a fantastic uh, walking group run by ramblers in the community, or there's a, a sing and swim group at the local leisure centre." Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's really about trying to do a bit of tailored. Um, nudging of individuals who could benefit from a community activity um, through this idea of a social prescription. The really important bit to understand in this, though, is that what's funded by the NHS is the individual, that social prescriber, who's writing the prescription. There's no money that follows that prescription to the community provision. So the individual's, in effect, being signposted in quite a targeted way to a community activity that that should have an evidence base behind it and should connect to what the evidence shows will benefit that individual's particular circumstances. Um, But there isn't a flow of money from the NHS to that community group. And and that is one of the tensions around social prescribing that um, the government haven't really bottomed out. I guess there's some opportunities, I guess, for the fitness industry around or particularly leisure providers around services they're providing that might be a possible signpost on, I guess. Absolutely. And I, and I think one of the key bits to to really grip onto in, in primary care networks and social prescribing is this idea of local. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a fantastic opportunity. And this, again, comes back to my point about whether PT should get a little bit more federated Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that you can kind of present, here's our local patch offer. Um, you know, I certainly was conscious when I came to Birmingham uh, and I was looking for a PT, unlike London, which is heavily saturated with personal trainers. Actually, it took me quite a long time to find a PT that wasn't attached to a gym in the city. 
Um, and I'm really happy with the guy, Toby, who I work with now. But it, um, yeah, it was a really interesting kind of reflection on uh, sometimes how hard it is to find people mm. and to understand kind of where they are in a place based way um, if they're not attached to a leisure centre. So I think there's a real opportunity there for PTs to make sure they get on that directory of social prescribers. Um, and the key, the main way of doing that will be about uh, you know, dropping an email to your local general practice mm-hmm. is probably the best way of doing it. And I do it as an email rather than knocking on the door because they get a lot of hassle uh, from, from yeah. busy people, the busy people. Uh, and kind of going, hey, I know you're forming, you know, you're getting your social prescribing stuff up and running. I'd be really keen to be on the directory. You know, this is what I offer. This is, um, you know, be up and front. There are things for social prescribing where providers are going, this is what I cost. Yeah, um, and that's fine. Um, but also be up and front and go. You know, I've got real expertise of working with young people or working with women, or um, you know, I've got. The, and this is where the qualification bit comes really important. Mm-hmm. I think in the kind of um, post reps world, shall we say? Yeah. Um, most of the rest of the world do not understand PT qualification. Yeah. So it's really important you spell out that if you've got enhanced qualifications and you've done additional courses and things like working with patients with mental health issues, put it in there because it's a real seller and it will really help the social prescriber think, actually, if I'm going to direct someone to a form of physical activity and I know that in my area I've got this PT who's got particular experience and qualification in this space, they'll point them your way rather than someone else's way. And that's why the marketing piece is really important. That no, sounds good. And I think that's that's really useful for us to think about. Um, cool. Um, well, going on from there, I guess, um, we've talked a lot about the fitness industry uh, and around inactivity and, and around NHS structure. But um, what else is happening kind of at a national level that you might be able to share with us in terms of this agenda at the moment? So obviously I've stepped back from, from being in the national role as I've moved to Birmingham, so I'm, I'm less connected on the secret stuff than I was. But I think some of the things that I would kind of flag in terms of what's going on uh, around the country, um, one is that Sport England have funded uh, 10 local delivery pilot areas. So these are geographical places where they're investing you ten ten million pounds or so varies between the areas um, into really doing very very place based community work in to really focus on those people doing less than thirty minutes in our most deprived and marginalised communities. And I think uh, although in some areas leisure providers are engaged, um, I'm not sure many PTs are, and really um, that that kind of asset of having quite a large freelance workforce mm-hmm. who could engage, hasn't necessarily been kind of engaged with or thought through. So I think there's a real opportunity there. You can find out about them on the Sporting the website. Okay. Um, and for each area, there should be a names lead person that you can kind of drop a line with uh, and go for a coffee with and talk about how you can get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one area. Um, I think we've seen uh, a really fantastic step forward in terms of disability inclusion. Uh, and really recognising that the uh, levels of inactivity amongst people with disabilities and impairments is so much higher. Um, And the Activity Alliance launched some new stuff 
just a week or two ago um, in terms of videos, resources and, and tools to help uh, providers get better at being inclusive in their provision. Mm-hmm. So definitely say have a look at that. Um, and then the final one is, is obviously there's work that Public Health England do through the Change for Life campaign, um, but also the One You campaign. Um, and again, if you base of those, um, the challenge is always how you get from a national advertising campaign down to local provision. Um, but there's loads of tools on there that, that are really helpful for PTs, um, not just in terms of kind of aligning with and, and getting, you know, and knowing where things are coming out. Um, there's always a kind of change for life push on physical activity over the summer, for example, with young people. But also there are other tools that you can use with clients. The Change for Life Sugar Swaps app, free, fantastically effective. The Active 10 app on brisk walking is really good because if you're working with someone who's really not achieving 30 minutes a day, you're going to need to start slow. Um, and you're also going to need to help them be active between your PT sessions. And, and again, that's a real opportunity um, to build in that space. Perfect. No, that's really useful. And there's some, there's some good resource there and, and action points for our guys to take away. Um, I guess kind of uh, starting to wrap up a little bit. Um, I think wanted to really ask you, um, what are the opportunities and kind of solutions that you think uh, nationally could be done to kind of progress this agenda further? So I think for me that when I step back and it, you know, it's always that luxury if you go back in hindsight and go, oh, I should have done this while I was there. But um, I, I think recognising that the way at, at a population level, at a national level, the biggest impact we have on people's health in terms of physical activity is the way that they move around when they live their lives. Yeah. Um, so I do think we will see increasingly the conversation about modal shift in terms of transport is the one that that we need to get much better at. Um, And what's interesting is the modal shift conversation is really driving at the moment through air pollution, and that's fantastic. Um, But for the patients, the individual persistents that PTs may be working with, um, that might be a useful trigger and a useful conversation to have to think about and, you know, bringing up the kind of, oh, what do you think about the protests and what's going on? And actually, have you thought about cycling or walking uh, to work or to school in those kind of ways? So I think there's a real uh, space at the moment, uh, both at a national and at an individual PT level, to be thinking much more cleverly around the narrative on modal shift and the the green ecological discussions that are going on at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really important. Um, I think where we should be going much firmer is the busting of snake oil myth mm-hmm. uh, around nutritional supplements for uh, people doing relatively, um, well, I would say normal physical activity with trainers. Um, you know, we, we, there's a real risk we're creating kidney stains, um, gall stains, and other nutritional problems or results of nutritional problems uh, for patients. Um, doing it with the best of intentions but we're also you know there's, there's a whole industry which is selling a load of stuff that's got no evidence no safety regulation because it's a food not a medicine mm-hmm. um, and it's damaging the industry so I, I would really like to see the industry um, 
either introduce much more voluntary uh, regulation around evidence for exercise-related nutritional substances or simply just walk away um, and focus much more on what we should be doing, which is supporting people to be active every day and to find ways to love and enjoy physical activity because that's what PTs do best, is help people find the joy in themselves and what they do. Um, so I think for mm. me, those, those are the kind of two really biggies. Um, and then I think the final one is thinking about um, how physical activity helps us be a better society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, coming to a city like Birmingham, which has huge tensions, um, it's a fantastically diverse city, but some of that plays out in tensions between different communities in the city. And you, um, a previous public health minister once said to me she'd never met a lonely uh, rambler. Um, she'd never met a lonely person that was physically active. Um, and I think there is a real opportunity. We're starting to see some little sprouts of that coming, mm-hmm. but for people to really think about how do we celebrate the fact that when people get active, they in generally, almost in every case, connect with someone else. Um, and whether it's running past someone or when they're out walking the dog, having a smile and a conversation, yeah, that power of physical activity to build a better society is something that I think we've yet to really realise and really bring out and, and, and see the potential of. No, that's really, yeah, no, the really valid points. Um, and I think something for us to take away and consider. Um, so, firstly, thanks, Justin, again for your time today. It's been really, uh, really interesting and a really interesting conversation. So just to okay. kind of really finish off, um, I guess, um, again, thanks to Justin. Uh, Justin's been a mentor of mine for many years. Um, so I might be a little bit biased in this, um, but he writes a fantastic <laughs> leadership blog. Um, so do connect or follow him on LinkedIn, where he generally shares these blogs. Um, but also his Twitter handle is uh, Dr. JV75, and he posts a range of topics, uh, including public health topics, and also areas of interest to him around in- inequalities in health. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And as always, do get in touch with us if you want to clarify any topics. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you on the next podcast. Thank you.